There are nearly 50,000 named species of spiders, and probably many more still undiscovered. And all of them have one defining problem, how to catch their next meal. Collectively, they use an enormous diversity of strategies. We all know about spiders that catch flying insects in their webs. Others stalk and pounce on their prey. One Hawaiian species spears insects out of midair, and a European species lives in a bubble underwater and dashes out to snatch passing insects. Despite radical diversity in hunting strategies, and in pretty much everything else about their size, shape, and ecology, almost all spiders have one tool in common. Venom. Venom plays a key role because it allows spiders to immobilize their prey. In turn, this approach facilitates a low-energy lifestyle in which spiders eat infrequent but very large meals. Venom allows spiders to go after the prey that would otherwise be too dangerous for most of them to attack. Two big open questions about venoms are where do they come from and what genes are involved? Were those genes co-opted from other metabolic processes? And how have they diversified to produce the complex cocktails that we see today? Another big open question is about venoms across the tree of life. It's not just spiders that have venoms. So do many snails and corals, platypuses, and some reptiles. Do these venoms share evolutionary origins? Or are they all evolutionary novelties? Our guest today, Greta Benford, is a biologist at Lewis and Clark College. For the last several years, she's been trying to answer these questions by investigating the origin story of venom in the brown recluse. Uh. Brown recluses are relatively small, usually less than an inch long, but they pack a powerful punch. The story of how the brown recluse got its venom is extraordinary. In a recent paper, Greta explains that the one variant of a protein needed to make venom only showed up twice in the tree of life. In arthropods, the group that includes things like spiders, ticks, and millipedes. And in cnidaria, the group that includes jellyfish and corals. That's a big jump, yeah. So um, just so everybody's clear, spiders and corals are not closely related at all. <laughs> I mean, they're all animals, but they're very far apart in the tree of life. Their common ancestor would have... Um, would have been around uh, in the Cambrian explosion. By the way, for those scoring at home, that's an ancestor shared at least 540 million years ago. Greta concluded that the gene needed to make the protein may have jumped from an ancient coral into an ancestor of arthropods through a process called horizontal gene transfer. We tend to think that genetic information is passed vertically from parents to offspring. But during horizontal gene transfer, bits of genetic information move horizontally between species. We talk a lot about horizontal gene transfer in our chat with David Quammen in episode 10. A few decades ago, we only knew about a few organisms that had this special protein found in brown recluse venom. But in a recent paper, Greta identified whole groups of organisms that have related proteins, underscoring how little we know about the origins of these compounds. On a more practical note, the more we know about venoms, where they come from and how they work, the more likely we are to find applications for them. For example, we're already using venoms to make insecticides and to make drugs for controlling pain. On this episode, we talk with Greta about the incredible chemical diversity of venoms, the distribution of venoms across the tree of life, and her favorite Hollywood depictions of spiders. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. This is Big Biology. Well, uh, Greta, it's super great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. And um, I wanted to start off just by relating a story that my mom has told me several times in, in my life. A few years ago, she was she was bitten by a brown recluse uh, in, in the middle of the night. And this story has made a big impression on me because just, just what happened. So so here we go. So, so she woke up in the middle of the night. She felt 
something on her arm and it, it bit her. And in the dark, she grabbed it and threw it across the room. And then a little later got up and realized that, you know, coming out of sleep that she'd been bitten by something. And, and she went and she found the spider and she, she trapped it in a vial and then went to church the next day and sitting there in the choir realized that her arm was swelling up and that, you know, something was really wrong. And, and so she took uh, herself and the spider up to the emergency room and uh, showed it to the docs and they said, oh yeah, that's a brown recluse. And they, they prescribed antibiotics um, and she ended up over the course of a couple of weeks, taking several rounds of, of antibiotics and um, her, her arm hurt, I think for quite a while and was, you know, red and swollen, but ended up being totally fine. So no, no long-term damage. Um, and, and the thing I really love about this story is that uh, a few days later when she was home, she took the brown recluse out into the woods behind my childhood home and released it back out there, you know, like, like 99 out of a thousand, 99 out of a hundred people would have smashed it flat. And no, she very carefully let this thing go in the woods. Anyway. So, so the question is, um, so what, what's going on here? So there must've been venom involved in that bite. Oh, wow. That's an excellent question. Um, well, first of all, I really would love to meet your mother. I mean, and, <laughs> I, don't, I think um, you guys I, are on the same page. <laughs> and that has some strong explanatory roots for how you became a biologist, probably. <laughs> um, well, the venoms of brown recluse are, are, um, are interesting in that they have a toxin in them that we know affects people, but it doesn't affect all people. And so... Um, the toxin is uh, it's something that um, attaches to cell surfaces and it clips uh, a phospholipid on the cell surface. So if you imagine a cell, it's like it's covered with a lawn. And so this toxin very specifically snips a phospholipid. Um, and that turns on this cascade of events in our bodies that activates an immune response. Um, but what's interesting is that some people have that immune response and other people don't. And so that wound on your mother's arm was actually her body responding by cutting off the blood flow to the bite site, right? And so the severity with which people, uh, people respond to the, that toxin in brown recluse venoms ranges enormously. In fact, and some we, people don't respond at all. We think some people don't respond at all. The huh. thing is, um, getting that negative data is really hard because if you don't feel anything or you don't right. respond, you, know, you, know, you don't know that. Check. Right? Yeah. So, um, and in fact, the situation where your mother actually collected the spider, took it into a doctor and got a diagnosis with the spider in hand is relatively rare, right? And so people go to the doctor often with a unexplained biter lesion and um, more often than we would like, doctors diagnose it as a spider bite without the kind of uh, yeah, more direct really evidence of having yeah. a spider in hand. And yeah. so, just, just before we jumped on, Marty was asking me if I if I've ever been bit by a spider, and like, I think <laughs> oh. so, but like, I don't really know. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know that I've been bitten just one time by a, a spider that felt like a tiny little pinch, right? And uh, I had no; it was of no consequence whatsoever, which is it's the most common reaction, right? But the thing that makes the brown recluse so special, if you if you allow those words, as your, as your mother noticed, <laughs> um, is that they have this toxin in their venom that affects us negatively. And, um, and it looks so much like a bacterial infection sometimes that, um, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have treatments in the U.S. that directly affect brown recluse bites. So antibiotics are really the best a doctor can do. Um, 
So when your skin dies like that, it's called necrosis. And so that can become infected. So it's safe to have antibiotics to help your body heal uh, from that wound. It's a prophylactic sort it's of a thing. It's a prophylactic. But, yeah. um, you know, often, more often than I would like, I get photos of really nasty festering wounds. Uh, I'm like, sure. Oh, I'm sure. Lucky you. And, yeah, they're, they're, they're pussy and um, big white spot in the middle. And those are not, that's not typical of a brown recluse bite. Usually they're kind of flat and um, they're dark. They get purple. They become hard with necrosis. Um, there's a white ring around the outside, which is where the, the you know, our, our blood flow is being cut off at that bite site. Um, so that's diagnostic. But if it's big and pussy and gross, it's usually not a brown recluse Something bite. else. Huh. Yeah, it's something else. And there are many, many other things that it could be. Um, and those are frequently misdiagnosed as a brown, rec- brown, rec- brown recluse bites. Yeah, that's a good segue. So how many different distinct venoms are there in the world? Are they all sort of, I, don't, I know we're going to get into this in, in some detail later, but just generally, are they mostly like the recluse? So there's just a cocktails of things all over the place. So spiders, well, just to lay some context, there were close to 50,000 named species of spiders in the world. 50,000, that's a lot. We think there are 100,000 out there. Um, and so, and we're just beginning to really, you know, survey broadly the venom composition um, across enough species that we can get a handle on the full dis- um, diversity of venom toxins. So just 50,000 species, any individual species will have hundreds, um, some up to thousands of different chemicals in their venom. Um, so collectively, there's over 10 million um, chemicals out there. It's just an enormous storehouse of chemicals contained in spider venoms. And these spiders are using their venoms for very different reasons, right? So. Um, the spider diversity has evolved almost entirely in the context of them being predators. So for them to eat, they have to go out and catch live prey, which is like, you know, if we needed to go fishing every time we were hungry, <laughs> right? So these, these venoms are just one of the tools they use to catch prey. And so you can imagine that a spider that um, makes a web, uh, and um, think about an orb web, which are the classic webs where they're flat, the spider sits in the middle, And then there are spiders that are just running around on the ground or living in holes, right? So they have very different lifestyles. They're catching very different prey. Um, So the composition of these venoms is really is really wide ranging and designed over hundreds of millions of years to be really good at catching the kinds of prey that these spiders are catching. So, um, but so to answer your question. you can species that are more closely related have more similar types of venoms, right? Um, and species that are more distantly related have um, different venoms, but uh, they see they they tend to be honed um, based on the kinds of diets that they have. Um, now, most spiders are generalists, meaning they'll um, they'll eat anything that they come across. Um, and they tend to have more complex venoms than spiders that are specialists, right? So, for example, there's, um, there are these spiders that are really good at catching ants, and they have fewer chemicals in their venoms, um, but uh, they're really effective on ants. So, um, so they're, they're highly diverse, but somewhat predictable in diversity based on where these spiders fit in the tree of spider life. So um, I just... 
want to circle back on this this idea of venom diversity and you know potentially millions of different kinds of chemicals that are within these these venom cocktails but if you had to say like are there any common modes of action so is there like a thing that they're designed best to disrupt what what is it oh great question well so um almost all spider venoms have uh um they have little peptides in their venoms that are that do a lot of the business work. So, and many of them are neurotoxins. And so they've evolved to act very specifically on the nervous system. But the part of the exciting story of spider venoms is that there's a huge diversity of neurotoxins. And so um, spider venoms have evolved these enormous diversity of ways in which the the chemicals manipulate the nervous system, and they do it with exquisite specificity. And so um, they'll either turn on the nervous system, and so an insect will twitch like crazy, it'll be paralyzed, or they'll shut it down, and it'll just become flaccid and not move. So so, so wait, just so I understand, so, so the key thing here is to paralyze the prey because probably the big danger for the spider is it just runs away right it gets bitten and then it escapes and it's a wasted wasted venom so so you've got to paralyze the thing and then let the other constituents do their work is that is that right that's right Uh, some spiders don't necessarily paralyze their prey they just crunch their prey to death and so they have fewer neurotoxins and and these are super fast acting right like the, the insects are paralyzed within seconds is that they differ a little bit but yeah they're usually paralyzed very quickly so you've got this system that's been evolving these very specific chemicals that interact with this you know, detailed physiology um, in ways that we learn a lot from. For example, um, so the, the, the end of, this, of, this, of a neuron can have these channels that pass calcium through them or sodium through them or, um, pot- or potassium. And these are chemicals that transmit that, that synapse. Um, so... Spider venom toxins can have evolved to to selectively find one of those kinds of ion channels and either block it up or turn it on and open it up. Now, insects' nervous systems are quite um, that we have similarities with with humans, um, but also differences. There are enough similarities though that we can look at how these toxins bind to these very specific ion channels and then learn from that in ways that can help with drug design. Um, or design of chemicals that might very specifically affect, um, say, insect pests. Yeah, they're natural drug designers. This is an interest of, of Art Mind. We've talked with other guests on the show about it. Um, how common is bioprospecting with spiders now? Very, very, yeah. very. Yeah, so um, a lot of the interest in, um, in venoms in general uh, and in spider venoms is driven by the potential for finding promising drugs or promising um, insecticides. And so, yeah, there are. There and are. have any been found and commercialized or is it yeah, still are, early stages or? There are, last I, I heard there were seven um, that are actually commercial products. One of the best known is um, something called Prealt. So these are not from spider venoms. There are some in the pipeline for spider venoms, but from other venoms, uh, there are some that are, um, that are commercially available. Um, so Cone snails are predatory snails that have evolved venom independently. Um, uh, so venom has evolved over a hundred times independently, wow. evolutionarily. Yeah, over a hundred times. Many of those in insects, right? Um, uh, so, but cones. So these snails are one of the types of organisms that surprise people. Like a venomous snail 
Oh yeah. <laughs> Ooh, look out! The that venomous sounds snail. horrifying, dun, right? Dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> These things are amazing. They, so they bury themselves in sand often, and they have like a little proboscis that they they waggle and they lure in fish, and they inject them, they harpoon them with venom, and the fish are instantly immobilized. Right. So from cone snails, a toxin has been um, isolated that manages pain and is on the market um, called prealt. Uh, so. That's a super that's, cool. Yeah, that's one of the cool things. And another great example is from Gila monsters. So um, uh, if you if you don't know if anybody out there doesn't know what a Gila monster is, Google it. They're so beautiful. Um, but they bite and they latch on and they kind of grind their fang, that grind their teeth, and the venom oozes out. You sound delighted about this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had a friend once who was giving a lecture with a Gila monster in his hand, and he actually managed to get himself bitten in front of a crowd. Oh, 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 no. <laughs> Oops. Go running off to the ER. Yeah, um, but a toxin has been isolated from their saliva that treats type 2 di- diabetes, right? So... Um, uh, there's promise of some to- toxins from spider venoms uh, um, being active in a way that could be beneficial for multiple sclerosis. Um, the, but the, the time it takes between isolating these toxins, figuring out exactly what they do, and then testing them in ways to make sure they're not going to have negative effects um, is you know, on the order of decades. So you'll be seeing them come through. I think the cone snails are a good segue into asking the broader phylogenetic question of who has venom in the world besides spiders and now we know snails. And so, you know, what, and what's the di- don't leave out and the Hilomon- Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. So, so what's the distribution across the tree of life uh, in venoms? Oh, that's a great that's a great question. And so um, part of that is uh, how do we define a, a venom? So um, we usually define venoms as, as things that are injected um, uh, in a way that that has negative physiological consequences. So, you know, spiders have fangs. They inject these, these um, cocktails of toxins. Uh, so the activity is happening internally on physiological systems. So... Uh, Corals. Anybody who's you know managed to interact with a fire coral, that's uh, we consider um, the thing that's being injected from corals to be venomous. So um, they have these little cells called nidi, and they harpoon, and the um, that they they have these rich chemical cocktails that get injected, and they're very diverse. Um, so and then. Within arthropods, so arthropods are the major branch of the tree of life where things have an exoskeleton, and there are, there are four major groups. So um, spiders are in a group called chelicerates. Um, they all have two body parts, eight legs, and they have these things that the chelicera is the, the basically the jaws and the fangs. Um, so spiders aren't the only chelicerates that have venom. Um, scorpions are the other op- um, obvious one, or another arachnid. So arachnids are a group within chelicerates. So scorpions have evolved venom. Of course, it comes out of a very different body part, um, out of their telson. <laughs> um, but some of the cutest um, venomous arachnids are, um, are pseudoscorpions. So pseudoscorpions are, are tiny. They're usually less than a centimeter. Um, they, uh, they have little pinchers 
called pedipalps. And in the thumb of the pincher, uh, some pseudoscorpions have venom. And they, they live in the leaf litter, and they use that venom to immobilize tiny arthropods like springtails. So um, that's... And, and then mites, I'm sorry, mites and ticks. So tick saliva... Um, so when ticks attach, they, they um, inject saliva into their victims, and those are rich chemical cocktails that are also considered to be venomous. They're toxic. Um, in fact, ticks have evolved the same toxin um, as a chemical in their venom as the brown recluse has, which is another interesting story. So, you know, so, so at some level, like it feels uh, familiar to think of arthropods, all these different groups of arthropods having venoms. Are there surprising groups that have venoms that like nobody knows? Like, are there venomous birds, for example? <laughs> there are birds that, um, that have toxins on their feathers, but we wouldn't consider those venomous. Um, uh, they're more sort of like repellents or something. Yeah. If there are, hmm. I'm not, I'm not aware. Um, the mammals have evolved some really cool venoms. Like uh, many people have maybe have heard of the platypus, uh, where males have venoms, and they're used defensively against other males. They 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 come out of their these hind these spurs on their hind legs, and they um, they inject one another with these these venoms. They're nasty and painful. My understanding is um, that full of little toxins that affect sodium channels and cause pain in other vertebrates. Um, shrews have venom. Um, huh. That uh, these tiny little uh, tiny little mammals um, have have really awesome venoms that have just recently been characterized. Um, and then a lot of fishes have have um, have defenses, have defensive toxins, and like the lionfish um, has toxins in their spines uh, that are that are really horrible. Um, of course, stingrays they've got venom. Another lineage that's evolved a venom that's not surprising, and that is the octopuses. Right. So octopuses are these small um, or well, they can be quite big. You know, they're these fleshy organisms that are sitting at the bottom of the ocean and relatively undefended except for camouflage. Um, and so they've evolved venom that serves as both a defense and a pre- predatory tool. So, so so, let me ask you a question that, that Marty and I have been discussing a little bit, and that's about um, whether there's a difference in uh, likelihood of using venom according to body size. And, and I was arguing that, well, big, big animals, big things can use brute force to get what they want. Whereas, you know, smaller things that are less capable of inflicting sort of brute force damage have to find other ways of, you know, disabling their victims or getting in. So, so would you say that the smaller something is, the more likely it is to have venom? Is that, is that true? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, not necessarily. And I'm just thinking about this with respect to comparatively across spiders that range in size from like, you know, huge tarantulas to teeny, teeny little, little spiders. Um, and what seems to matter a little bit more is how they're mobilizing their prey. So, um, and probably the riskiness of the kind of prey that they're, they're taking. Um, and if you think about snakes, I mean, some snakes are huge and they have really nasty venom. Super venomous. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but for example. Okay. So, so data is already refuting my theory, which you know, is like. <laughs> it's a really it, good idea. And maybe we can have a comparative analysis. It's good, good to kill this idea <laughs> off right now. <laughs> Why wouldn't really big predators? And the, the first thing that comes to mind, Art and I, as he said, we had this conversation offline. Komodo dragons, right? I mean, they're not venomous, really. 
but they do play a game with uh, toxins that are, I mean, they're not their own, right? They're bacteria that sort of hang out in their mouth that gets in their prey and then just sort of slump along after whatever it is they're eating for a long time. But why isn't that a strategy that is more common? Or is it just, again, that, you know, we're not looking, we haven't looked yet. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, in what comes to mind in a more most horrifying um, vision of like, what do, what do, why don't raptors have venom? I mean, these um, or owls that are swooping down from the sky, picking up um, mammals that are fighting with sharp, pointy teeth. <laughs> like having venom could be helpful, but I suppose if you're just like strong and powerful and impactful, um, that's all you need. Like, um, uh, you know, recently I saw a video of a, of a, I think it was a killer whale going beneath, a, um, swimming beneath a stingray. And right when it got to the place where, where its tail was just beneath the stingray, it flapped its tail really powerfully and knocked the stingray out. Um, and the stingray floated down and the, and the shark took it away, right? So, um, I mean, what matters is that uh, a predator is able to immobilize um prey and eat it before it damages, they get damaged by it. And so, um, you know, cheetahs, sharp pointy teeth and <laughs> arcane, right. our canines are quite small, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, speed and pointy teeth that can get you a long way. So all of these species that have venoms are carrying them around. Uh, how often do they damage themselves and how do they avoid, you know, uh, like disrupting their own nervous systems, for example. <laughs> that's uh. that's such a great question. I um, uh, I, the image I have in my in my mind is uh, instead of running with scissors, uh, <laughs> <laughs> running with fangs, right? Yeah, <laughs> running with your Oops. fang hanging that, that, down. That's what the parent tarantulas say to their babies: like, <laughs> don't do right. it, no. <laughs> like, oh no, I've stabbed myself in the leg. <laughs> um, uh, spiders are not immune to their own venom. Um, uh, I mean, I, I say that with probably more absoluteness than, than I should. Um, we have no evidence that spiders are immune to their own venom. Um, they readily cannibalize siblings, um, their mother. <laughs> they, uh, the, the so if they bite con specifics, they can paralyze them? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, huh, um, interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and so venom glands, the, the venom is contained. Um, it'll be helpful to understand a little bit the whole venom system. So um, glands produce the venom secretions and they're stored in these glands until they're squirted out basically through this um, very specialized duct and fang. Um, so while they're retained in the venom gland, um, they're, uh, they're inactive um, and uh, we still have a lot to learn about what things activate them, but often they have um, these little, so the proteins themselves have little regions called, pre-pro, um, called propeptides that need to get snipped off for them to be active. Um, the timing and the location of that, we still don't know a lot about. Um, uh, and um, there's some early evidence that, uh, well, venoms tend to be um, uh, acidic, and so um, we think they might have things like citric acid that keep the acidity low in venoms. And so these toxins aren't um, fully active until they reach physiological saline oh, I see. circumstances. So, so they're literally inactive until they come out of the fang and into the body of the victim, at which point they're neutralized and they become active. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And is that very, the idea? Simply, that's, that's, that's uh-huh. our working hypothesis. Um, yeah. We also imagine if you um, if a spider drank its own venom, um, these toxins, since they're proteins and peptides, uh, should be broken down by the digestive. They get digested. System. Yeah. Yeah. So um, people ask me that 
often if you drank brown recluse venom, would you die? And my my hypothesis is no. I think our our, our digestive <laughs> enzymes would break it down. Don't don't test it, will you? Nobody out there That should be the case. And part of the evidence that's consistent with that is if you think about plant toxins. I mean, plant toxins are not broken down by digestive enzymes by design. Otherwise, they'd be mm-hmm. lousy. Right, so, right. <laughs> so you typically don't get peptide toxins in plants, um, but they work well when they're injected physiologically in venoms. What about the costs of making venoms? I mean, is there has there been much research in light of what we were talking about before? Why don't more species have them? They've evolved a lot. Many that different independent lineages, but are they expensive to make? Do we know? Do they, are they sort of constraining and carrying around potentially large volumes when you're trying to do other things physiologically? What's the research there? Yeah, they, um, they are expensive to make. Um, there have been some metabolic uh, um, studies on the metabolic costs, and they are high. Um, I haven't looked at those in a while, but they there is evidence that there's a metabolic cost to making venoms, which makes sense. They're protein-rich. Um, they get transcribed fairly quickly. So um, what, what we do to study venom is we give spiders a little electrical shock and empty out the venom glands, and then they fill up the glands um, by making more protein. They do that fairly quickly um, and then carry it around. Uh, so, um, so yeah, they, the, the venom glands themselves can occupy enormous amounts of space in the, in the um, body of the spider. So um, arachnids have these two body parts, for example, and the cephalothorax is the front body part, and venom glands can fill up a large volume of that space. So their their cost, the glands themselves are just you know organs that why would you keep around if they weren't really important? Well, let's turn, um, in 2018, you wrote a, a paper in BMC Evolutionary Bio with um, Matt Cords, and um, it's a really neat sort of run through the evolution of, uh, of venoms generally. And I, it seems, I mean, I, I learned so much from this paper, but can you tell us something about the sort of original or the current physiological role of the enzyme from which a lot of these uh, venoms are derived and then maybe as you do that walk us back through the relationships because we we, you know you did a great job of listing all the diversity but I think threading or or, or moving the thread through all of these different lineages with respect to this enzyme makes for a it's just a remarkable story oh I'm so glad you asked about this because I'm just riveted by this story and um just so Matt Cordes is my collaborator um at Arizona and he's he's really the biochemical brilliance behind this work but um so starting from the beginning, when I first I became interested in studying this toxin in brown recluse, because um, back in the early 2000s, it was only known in a few brown recluse uh, spiders related to the brown recluse and pathogenic bacteria. And I thought, wow, OK, that's, a, <laughs> that's <laughs> it's pretty different. That's right. That's weird. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe lateral like horizontal gene transfer could explain something about the history of this toxin. And what horizontal gene transfer is, is um, usually genetic information is passed from parents to offspring. So just uh, descending what we call vertically through these ancestral lineages um, and make a pretty tidy tree-like um, picture. Um, but sometimes... 
um, proteins can move between completely unrelated uh, organisms through a mechanism called horizontal gene transfer. So that's what caught my attention for this toxin way back when. Um, you know, in the last couple decades, a lot has come out. So we, uh, first of all, um, the brown recluse is just one species in a group that has about 130 species. So we basically um, started with the brown recluse and tried to walk our way out the tree of life to find the closest relatives that didn't have that toxin in their venom um, to try to figure out, okay, you know, we know the brown recluse can cause these, these types of damage when they bite, but not all spiders do. So somewhere in the history of spiders, there was this evolutionary event that turned on this toxin um, as a venom toxin. So I wanted to figure out when that happened. And so we, we were able to collect um, relatives of the brown recluse from you know, multiple continents and test their venoms. They all had this toxin in their venom. Um, and this includes uh, a bunch of different related species from South Africa, from um, South America. Um, there are these spiders. The closest relatives of the brown recluse are super cool spiders called six-eyed sand spiders. Did we confirm that this, they also had the toxin in their venom? Um, but then the next branches over didn't have that toxin. So we kept looking at close, like more and more distant relatives, and they didn't have that toxin in their venom. So um, we hypothesized that there was this evolutionary event that turned this protein into a venom toxin before the, the earliest common ancestor of the six-eyed sand spiders and the brown recluse lineage. Um, Which is about how long ago? Well... Uh, we did um, something called molecular phylogenetics and um, molecular dating and have evidence that this family originated in western Gondwana over about 120 million years ago. So, so I want to circle back to this idea of horizontal gene transfer, um, because I think what you just described is like the, you know, the origin of venom and its diversification in a single clade. So what, what about that involves horizontal gene transfer? Well, so um, going back to the initial interest of, of where this, this thing came from, what we did for that 2018 paper was take um, a bunch of the different proteins in databases that are related to our sequences um, that we know are expressed in venom. We searched far and wide for anything that's out there. Um, like one of the fun things about being a biologist right now is that data sets are being populated like crazy with rich resources. And so you can just search through. Um, and then we made phylogenetic trees um, of all of those sequences to see um, what we could find. It turns out if you walk down the tree of life, um, you get a bunch of spiders and other arachnids that have copies of this protein in them. You see that. And then um, it turns out a few centipedes and millipedes also have copies of this gene in their genome. So those are also arthropods. So um, you can think, okay, well, the most recent common ancestor of arthropods may have had this toxin in their venom or this chemical in their venom. But if you go down from, if you, if you can follow along here and think about the common ancestor of all arthropods and take the next step down in the tree of life, what do you find? Um, so uh, we know arthropods are related to things like onycophora, which are velvet worms and tardigrades. Um, we don't find any, um, any of this protein in um, tardigrades or velvet worms. What we found were copies of this gene in um, cnidaria, in corals and sea anemones. So they have a homologue. Yeah, um, that seems like quite a jump. That's a big jump, uh. yeah. So um, 
just so everybody's clear, spiders and corals are not closely related at all. <laughs> I mean, they're all animals, but they're very far apart in the tree of life. Their common ancestor would have um, would have been around uh, in the Cambrian explosion, right? So 530-some years ago, million years ago. Um, so, uh, so if you wanted to explain that distribution of that protein um, just by a common ancestor having it and then it being inherited by all descendants, you'd have to um, have had it be lost many, many, many times in, in, in animal life. Right. So and, and so you just think that's not not a reasonable hypothesis we don't think for that distribution. No, just yeah. just probabilistically, it's not a reasonable hypothesis. Um, it's not been we haven't found any related proteins in the whole branch of the tree of life that's called deuterostomes. That includes us, um, echinoderms, major branch, um, not present at all. Okay, so um, so horizontal gene transfer um, sometime in the history of of this protein family between, imagine in the ancient seas, uh, something in a coral and um, or some other marine organism we haven't surveyed yet because we don't have full data, um, to an ancestor of the arthropods um, is one mechanism for, for origin. And, and can you envision, like, how, how did that gene make the jump? Um, that's a really good question. And so um, we know that uh, horizontal gene transfer happens um, very commonly between uh, single-celled organisms, between bacteria um, and among bacteria, but also from bacteria into um, into eukaryotes, so um, the branch of life that includes us. Um, we know that, um, so we've actually found a relative of this toxin in some bacterial uh, genomes and bacteria have these things called operons, which are like the regions that have basically, I think of them as little, um, little slots where genes move in and out. And some of them usually have a pathogenicity gene, um, in a particular place. Well, this, this, um, protein shows up in, um, this pathogenicity place in some bacteria. So it could be mediated by bacterial, um, uh, endosymbionts or bacterial associates uh, between, um, say, corals and uh, and ancestral arthropods. So some kind of um, some kind of intermediate could have been invoked. So you do, are there any? Is there any evidence that um, microbes play a role in? I mean, there's some interplay between microbes and and spider or arachnid production of toxins. Yeah, there's no evidence. I mean, it's pretty clear that the toxins themselves are products of genes in the genome of the spiders. Um, so, however, if we go back into these ancient oceans where we think things were hopping around, this is like ancestors of this toxin were hopping around between lineages, um, what we find in the broader tree of relationships is proteobacteria being the sister um, to major clades, major branches of the tree of life that have this um, enzyme in them. Um, so I mentioned before, like looping back to the, the origin story of my interests in this, this puzzle, um, back to that pathogenic bacteria, it turns out there's a big clade of actinobacteria um, that, in, that have this protein, um, and it's associated with pathogenic fungi. A lot of fungi also are more closely related to this bacterial toxin. 
Um, and then we discovered a whole major group that was previously unknown called the, we call the aquatic clade. So there are proteins related to these toxins that are doing, they're found in a bunch of different animals, mostly marine. Um, and again, we don't know what the function is. So, you know, we discovered these major groups, like the one that includes the bacteria and the fungi, and then this other major group, and then there's the venom group. Um, but each of those are more closely related to proteobacteria than they are to the other major groups. So it looks like lateral transfer happens into these major lineages of multicellular organisms and then was retained and you know, co-opted for different functions. So, so, so the gene came from proteobacteria multiple times into different groups. Yes, yes. Okay, so it was like great. seeded into these lineages and then there to be to diversify into these new functions, which I think is pretty cool. Greta, I have a question on an entirely different level. Um, <laughs> oh, the no. movie, He's the movie ask. Arachnophobia. Oh, going to ask. <laughs> what? What do you think? <laughs> oh boy. Um, <laughs> where, where to start? <laughs> where to start? You know, I mean, it would be really fun to record a podcast of like us watching Arachnophobia <laughs> together and you doing the commentary. Yeah. It could be like the drunk history, right? Or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, like the, the tarantula flying across the room and aiming at the juggler. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive. impressive. The thing I, you know, um, the the my favorite movie of that ilk is um, uh, oh shoot, eight legged eight legged freaks. Eight it must be freaks. eight legged freaks. Yes. You know, is it? I, I would have said that sarcastically. Wow. I've never no. seen that movie. That's true. And the reason I like eight legged freaks is because the spiders are modeled after really cool actual spiders. You've got like jumping spiders which have huge eyes and great vision that are the size of Volkswagen buses hanging out on rooftops pouncing on people I mean <laughs> how cool that's pretty cool that? like. <laughs> and spitting spiders which actually exist and uh, spit glue on their prey um, and tether them down like imagine those lurking around a corner I mean that um, yeah so arachnophobia was so far off of anything uh, that related to a <laughs> biological reality of spiders but I liked right. I appreciated eight-legged freaks I'm, I'm taking that as a thumbs down on arachnophobia <laughs> fair, fair enough alright two, two last questions I bet this first one uh, you could go on forever you might not even have an answer for it do you, do you have a favorite spider oh gosh or group you know I have like a top top 10 list um top 37 or something <laughs> yeah i mean the spitting spiders rank right up there because i mean they shoot glue from their chilis modified by chelicery and tether prey to the ground which is just awesome um but there's a spider that's very near and dear to me called um uh, dorianicus raptor and it's found in Kauai. and there are these beautiful emerald green spiders looks kind of long and skinny Oof. they hang underneath um trees come out at dusk, and they have a long um, a long tarsal claw. So their first claw is like a little scythe. And so they hang with these claws hanging out, and they can detect the air movement made by wing beats of insects. And they reach out and stab them from the air. Wow. No. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You have so many movies to make. This is amazing. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> they stab them from the air. They take that prey off and then just hang right there again. But, yeah, impressive. And and they're green. That, that's just, they're wow. beautiful emerald green. And the, and the last question that we ask of all of our guests is, what didn't we give you the chance to say about spiders, about science, about 
you know, anything you'd like to share? Oh, my gosh. Well, I suspect that the people listening have a wide range of opinions about spiders. Um, so I would encourage folks to think about the reality that um, spiders kind of decorate our world. They do a very important service of eating an enormous amount of insects that would otherwise be eating our plants, eating us. Um, and uh, and they contain a resource of knowledge that we're still, we still need to discover, right? So uh, as I said, nearly 50,000 described species, and we don't know how many more are out there. Um, and each of those contains major libraries of chemicals and other things that can we have a, a lot to learn from. And so I view them as like pieces of the puzzle of this tr- uh, uh, that can tell us about the processes that generated that diversity, but also resources that may have solutions to problems of humanity just sitting there um, waiting for us to discover. Mm, fantastic. Spider gold mine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Good. Spider oh, gratitude. <laughs> yeah. well thanks so much yeah super fascinating chat and I really appreciate you coming on the show movie studios are constantly inventing new ways for spiders to terrorize us the cliche is that toxic waste or radiation transforms them into rampaging killers but the reality is you don't need cinematic tricks to tell fascinating stories about spiders as Greta says, spiders should inspire way less fear and a lot more curiosity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. If you thought Greta's story about horizontal gene transfer was interesting, you should also check out our interview with David Quammen. We chatted with him about his recent book, The Tangled Tree, in which he describes the discovery of horizontal gene transfer and how it's transformed biology. If you love the podcast, and you know you do, please donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio. You can make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org, and you can help the podcast by just telling your friends about us over social media. Tag us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. On the next episode of Big Biology, we talk with Nick Lane about his book, The Vital Question. Nick focuses on the relationship between life and energy, and he argues that energy production may be one of the oldest characteristics of life, predating even the origin of DNA. So then you can say, okay, so the host cell was an archaeon. It acquired a bacterial endosymbiont. This is the beginning of uh, the evolution of eukaryotes. What happened next? So there's almost nothing to constrain you here. We have, Again, this is a little bit like the, the, the origin of life. We have a starting point. Um, and we have a known end point. Um, uh, and the question is, well, can we imagine a path? Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Big Bio interns Ajinkia Dahake, Dana Baxter, Jordan Greer, and Ruth Dimry manage our social media accounts and help us produce the show. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear. <laughs>